Welcome to Today on Broadway for Thursday, January 4th, 2018. I'm Broadway World's Matt Tamanini. And I am Broadway star's James Marino. And I'm a theater throwback's Daniela Parcell. Uh, James, Danielle and I are down here in central Florida. It's it's a little chilly here. It was, you know, in the mid 40s to low 50s down here, but that's nothing compared to what you guys are going to have or are currently having and are going to have later today and into the weekend up in New York. So everybody in the upper New England East Coast area, please be safe, bundle up, uh, go out and get all of your bread and milk and alcohol now so that uh, when the big, what is it, a bomb cyclone, uh, whatever, whatever the heck that is, whenever that hits, you'll have stuff to, uh, to you'll have sustenance to keep you from dying of starvation. But seriously, be safe. Don't do anything stupid. Don't feel like you've got to go out, you know, and do anything crazy on the streets but uh be safe and be warm yeah yeah even if you have hamilton tickets <laughs> well maybe uh, me, I don't know about that one if you have springsteen tickets <laughs> and you can't use them you know james at broadwayradio.com yeah you'll you'll get a snowmobile all the way from long island to go see that <laughs> exactly <one. laughs> all right what's up in the show and casting news All right, so we didn't have any major stories hit the news yesterday, but we did have a handful of interesting ones. And the first one up is the announcement of the new cast to lead the off-Broadway production of Sweeney Todd into its second year at the Barrow Street Theater. Current Mr. T and Mrs. Levitt, Hugh Pinero, and Carolee Carmelo will play their final shows on February 25th, and they will be succeeded by Tom Sesma and Sally Ann Triplett. Sesma is a regular on and off-Broadway and was most recently seen, not most recently, he did some other things, but last year he was in the John Doyle directed classic stage company's production of Pacific Overtures, which just so happens to have also been written by uh, Stephen Sondheim, as Sweeney Todd was, obviously. Triplet was last seen on Broadway as Peggy White in The Last Ship. Uh, also playing their final performance on the show on February 25th will be uh, Jake Boyd as Anthony, Aaron LaCroix as Joanna, and John Michael Lyles as Tobias. Their replacements will be Billy uh, Harrigan-Tiggy, Delaney Westfall, and Noah Pizer, respectively. The rest of the show's cast will remain with the production through the cast changes. Westfall can currently be seen as Lauren in Kinky Boots on Broadway if you want to check her out in a very very different role and very different show before she ends up in the pie shop at Sweeney Todd. In other Broadway show news, yesterday the little show that could, the play that goes wrong, announced that it had opened up a new block of tickets through July 1st of 2018. We didn't mention it in all of the grosses talk yesterday, but the last week of 2017 was the show's best during its Broadway run as it pulled in receipts of over $707,000. Now, James and Daniela, I am not ashamed to admit that in the late summer, early fall of last year, I predicted that along, I think it was War Paint, I said War Paint, and the show that goes wrong will be the next two shows to announce closing dates. Clearly, my crystal ball was a little hazy that day because it will be celebrating one year on Broadway on March 9th, which is the anniversary of its first preview. And it looks poised to play through the summer at least. So congratulations to them. You know, we've said it before. We didn't want this one to close because very rarely do shows like this even make it to Broadway unless it's noises off. And that's really the only one that ever gets there, uh, at least in recent years. So very happy to see this one succeeding. And I would expect a recruitment announcement to happen fairly soon um heading out of town for some news yesterday the shakespeare theater company in washington dc announced that their upcoming production of hamlet had already been extended 
even before the first performance takes place. Led by Michael Yuri in the title role, the show will now run from July 6th or from January 16th through March 4th at Sydney Harmon Hall. James, we've talked about Yuri a lot lately here in the last year or so on Today on Broadway, and it just seems like he goes from one interesting, heralded production to another, whether they be in New York or obviously somewhere else like DC. And I would expect to see him back on Broadway presumably with torch song sooner rather than later. And maybe he'll finally get some, maybe a Tony nomination or something out of that because his stage career seems to be on a very quick upward trajectory. And finally, in this section yesterday, it was announced yesterday that a new national tour of a chorus line would be launching later this month. The show will feature Michael Bennett's original uh, Broadway direction and choreography recreated by one of the show's original or by the show's one of the show's original stars and unofficial steward Bayork Lee. Lee, who directed the Hollywood Bowl production in 2016, has directed over 35 productions of a chorus line in the past. The show will be non-equity hashtag ask if it's equity and will play. 33 cities in the U.S. before heading to an engagement in Tokyo. The tour will launch in Somerville, New Jersey on January 20th before going to the thriving metropolis of uh, Jackson, Mississippi, Shreveport, Louisiana, Johnstown, Pennsylvania, Elmira, New York, Greeley, Colorado, and a handful of spots down here in Florida before wrapping up its run on June 3rd at the Kauffman Center in Kansas City, Mo. Now, you know, we'll have the complete tour schedule in the show notes at broaderradio.com if you want to see where it's going. And obviously I'm joking about all the smaller towns that it's playing, but honestly it's got like five or six different places. Um, it's coming here in Florida, Daniela, it's coming to your adopted hometown of Gainesville, Florida at the Phillips performing oh, arts center in nice. April. So maybe you'll see it there. Um, but I'll probably go to one of these, whether it's in Gainesville or Clearwater or, or the villages or something. Um, because I, I I love a chorus line and I've seen a production, a, a touring production that Lee directed before and it was fantastic. So anytime you can see one of the best shows ever written, directed by somebody who is so ingrained in the DNA of this show, um, that's a good thing, even if they are playing, uh, you know, places like Boise, Idaho. Didn't no make thing. it to Schenectady, did they? Um, no, only big tours launch in Schenectady, James, but it is going to places like I mentioned Elmira and Binghamton, which is not too far from Schenectady. Um, so, you know, Syracuse is in there as well. So it's hitting the upstate New York fairly well, just not the big theatrical hub that is Schenectady, New York. If you're hitting the upstate towns, you shouldn't do it like January, February, March. You should probably focus on July, August. (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, Binghamton is uh, February 13th and 14th. Syracuse is February 20th and 22nd. Elmira is February 27th and 28th. Oops. Talk about tough gigs. All right. (laughs) It's a hard knock life. Uh, Next up in the news, uncensored, indecent to be available on Broadway HD this month. Yeah, I, I was a little surprised and confused about this one because I guess I didn't realize that the PBS version had been censored, but apparently it was. Uh, Let me read from their press release for you guys, because I... The wording in here is a little weird to me. Uh, when Indecent aired on PBS's great performances, it was missing some of the elements that helped to earn the 2017 Tony Award for Best Direction. Ironically, a play with a deep history of censorship, one that was put on trial for obscenity, was once again too provocative to be seen as intended. 
now for the first time ever outside of the court theater. It can be seen completely uncensored when it comes to Broadway HD. I think completely ignoring the fact that the show was done off Broadway first. But anyway, um, to me, this statement seems a little heavy handed, especially since PBS is probably a very, very valuable partner for Broadway HD. Um, I believe they share some of the recording costs that keep Broadway HD probably afloat. Um, but so I'm a little I was a little surprised uh, by that. But that that aside, we'll come back to that. The show will be streaming for subscribers beginning on January 25th. Now, James, you've seen the show at least once, if not twice. I don't know if you saw I can't remember if you saw it off Broadway or not. But do you think that anything that would have been censored, so to speak, um, would have a dramatic impact on the viewing experience for people who only saw the show on PBS or whatever was censored? Was it just you know, mine a little, you know, a, a mooning or something like that. I think that uh, that the censoring was was minor and probably had to do with FCC requirements because PBS is broadcast over the air or OTA. Uh, so, in order to save PBS station licenses from a uh, a challenge from some family coalition of Republican freaks Ugh. from the right. Um, I think that's officially their name. Um, that, uh, <laughs> the the that, parents television commission or something is probably, I think yeah. what it actually is, but you're, you're probably have a more apt description, <laughs> you know, something Tipper Gore would be proud of. So, um, oh, so not, not the bastion of conservative politics, but, uh, I know where you're going with that. Yeah, yes, exactly. So uh, the long and the short of it is, is I don't think that the censorship was huge, um, but it, it was uh, – I, I sort of remember when it aired on PBS, people mentioned it in passing. But I don't think it was uh, – I don't think it was a tremendous change, not that I can remember. So okay. we'll see. Well, we'll be able to uh, compare the two, won't we? I mean uh, – Yeah, uh, I have I, recordings yeah. of it floating around from PBS. And yeah, when it comes I've got it program. saved on my DVR. So, yeah, I can definitely. We'll have to ask Rob Johnston to do a comparison contrast of the two. <laughs> side by side. Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, what's up in the recommendation section? All right. We have two articles, James, both of which you sent me. So uh, I want oh. your insights on both, especially the second one. But the first is a Q&A with Robert Wankel, the president and co-CEO of the Schubert organization. And he's also the outgoing chairman of the Broadway League, as we've talked about before. Uh, Disney Theatrical's Thomas Schumacher will be taking over that three-year voluntary role. Uh, the interview is in Cranes, New York, and you'll need to have an account to read it in full. Uh, but the accounts are free. So if you want to do it. You can sign up for free and read the whole article. But in the discussion, which seems to have been done via email because Wankel's responses are very short, um, but it, after a discussion about bots and scalpers, he was asked what other challenges Broadway as an industry faces. And he said, quote, the biggest problem facing Broadway is rising costs. We're a labor intensive business and our costs keep going up. I don't want to say more because of our relationship with the unions. He goes on to talk about the shortage of theaters and the things he is proud of during his tenure as the league's chairman. But, James, that comment about the unions really struck me, especially in regard to the ongoing legal battle between the league and the casting directors. Um, we talked uh, about putting things back into Pandora's box yesterday when it comes to ticket prices, and this seems to be a fairly closely related topic. So 
um, at the risk of mix, mixing my metaphors here, do you think the league would ever try to put the genie back in the bottle in terms of labor costs? The unions have shown just how powerful they are when it comes to negotiations in recent years. I, I can't imagine that the league would want to go head to head with them too often uh, because I would kind of think they'd end up losing even more than they've already had. So it's ironic that I first saw this article yesterday. I guess it came out yesterday um, because it was on the heels of like an astounding weekly grosses announcement. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, I had seen in a bunch of uh, stagehands and different union pages uh, popping this article around uh, Facebook and other social media. And I took a look at it. And they were really unhappy with just that one sentence that you had uh, mm -hmm. you had uh, flagged as well. So it's interesting, you know, with all sh all, all these shows announcing their uh, their break evens and organizations like Schubert uh, being more or less a transparent organization, you can see how much money they make. Uh, for for mm -hmm. a producer to go out there and say, you know, nobody that is um, no nobody that's looking at Broadway from a business perspective is saying Home for the Holidays should have paid people more. You know, <laughs> I mean, they they took a blood it's a bloodbath over at Home for the Holidays, but other shows that are making considerable amounts of money. Um, uh, uh, to be hard for producers to complain about this, especially theater owners who. Exactly. You know, uh, those theaters are long, 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 long paid off. You know, uh, there and, and yeah. surely there's maintenance costs and there's labor costs and things like that. But the actual real estate and the theater itself, I mean. You know, you're you're not sitting upon uh, upon a, a massive nut every every month to pay off a mortgage on those theaters, right? And it's so much different be between you know the Schubert organization who they do get involved with producing shows, that, but they're the theater owner. The same thing with Ju Jamson. Jordan Roth will be a producer on a show, but their major income is because they're the landlords and they're making money no matter what. Now, obviously a lot of times their money is tied in to how well a show does, but it just seems a little odd that that's a fight that seemingly he's trying to pick. Um, and obviously that fight's been picked um, when it comes with the, the casting directors and the lawsuit that the Broadway league filed against them. But it just seems like, man, it, it looks. It just feels like they're fanning the flames in, in a fight that they just can't win. We saw that when it came to the off-Broadway contract last year or the year before or whatever it was, um, the union, the Actors' Equity, was able to really motivate its its um, its membership, and they got their message out, and they got this huge, great contract. So I just. I don't know what the upside is to try and pick a fight with them other than to maybe soften them up to maybe meet in the middle more than they would have if they just pretended like everything was hunky-dory. Uh, we'll have to see what happens in uh, the next round of negotiations between the organizations. Um, and, you know, he did not make Schumacher's job easier by giving this interview. <laughs> 
And Tom oh, Schumacher is is one of the nicest people and most respected people in the business. So uh, I don't know. I, I can't imagine what the wh- why why would you do that? Exactly. All right. So uh, next up, Variety Profiles, Broadway's go-to voice coach, coach Liz Kaplan. Yeah, James. In Variety yesterday, they did this article on Liz Kaplan, who we've talked about, obviously, here. Every Broadway insider knows of of Liz Kaplan or knows her directly. Um, they did a really nice profile on her. If you aren't familiar with her, she is basically the person that everybody goes to for voice lessons if they are somebody. She's also the vocal supervisor for Dear Evan Hansen, Book of Mormon, Miss Saigon, Aladdin. She worked with the stars of Beauty and the Beast, the the movie that came out last year. She was the vocal producer on The Greatest Showman, which is out in theaters now, and she worked with Coco that's in theaters too. She's they talk about they get quotes from Ben Platt and Stephen Colbert and Hugh Jackman who've worked with her and all this stuff. And she's working with speaking of Tommy Schumacher, uh, she's working intimately with Casey Levy, who is going to play Elsa and Frozen. Um, so just a really nice thing to uh, have this article about her. But, James, I was a little upset when I read this, if I have to if if, if I have to be honest about it. Do you know why? No. It doesn't mention her prize pupil. You, <laughs> you, you were you were, were you her first student? No, no, no. Oh, okay. not 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 by not by far. But uh, certainly, uh, Liz was my coach back in the nineties, ninety ninety two through ninety seven, ninety nine, or something like that. Uh, but uh, back Daniela, then, were you born then, Daniela? Were um, you alive? In 99 and 98, I was born. Not in 92. <laughs> I, was, I was getting ready. That was my senior year of high school when you were born, but that's fine. It, James is old, so it's all good. So I was, um, you know, starting with her when I was an, when I was an infant. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you were going out to play like uh, uh, one of the newsboys in Gypsy. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I was the uh, the baby they carried on stage in various uh, shows. So uh, you were, yeah. Tw- uh, what is it, Tom uh, Twan? Uh, oh, oh yeah. what's the little <laughs> baby that Bruno Malley and Hunter Foster yeah. and Jen Cody mm-hmm. pass around? Yeah, exactly. Anyway, yeah. But yeah, it's a it's a great article from Liz. They talked to you know Patrick Harris and all these people about just how great she is, and she's really like the guru of of Broadway voice coaches, and it's nice to see somebody that's super behind the scenes getting some recognition because I don't know that I can ever remember a high profile voice teacher profile in something like variety, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think it, it's got to do with, uh, uh, uh Hugh Jackman's, uh, movie right now. Um, it's getting so much press and I think mm-hmm. that that was the focus on that, you know, she, Hugh Jackman and, uh, Benj Pasek and Lin-Manuel Miranda and all the others that are in that article are really good uh, grabs for Variety to be uh, talking with Liz about. All right. So, Danielle, Daniela, tell us about this week's theater throwback. So today I have two shows to talk about. Uh, They are very different shows, but they both opened on January 4th. They both closed on that same January 4th, and they both had their extremely brief runs at the Palace Theater. I love this. (laughs) 
The first is Home Sweet Homer, which opened in 1976. This was a musical based on the Odyssey, and it followed the 10-year journey of Odysseus back home to his wife, Penelope. (laughs) Wait, hold on. What was the name of that show again? (laughs) Home Sweet Homer. Doe. Yeah. So um, Home Sweet Homer starred Yul Brynner in his first Broadway appearance since The King and I over 20 years earlier. His name did have some box office draw, but obviously it wasn't enough to keep the show from closing on opening night. Most of the show's issues came before it even got to New York. Prior to its Broadway run, Home Sweet Homer had embarked on a year-long national tour. And as is the case with probably every flop I've talked about, the reviews for this musical were below average. In this case, they actually weren't too dreadful. Like, they weren't bad enough to instantly close it, but they certainly didn't do anything to help. One of the show's biggest problems was the costs. As I mentioned, the show started out on this long, expensive tour, and according to the producers, before it even got to Broadway, it had already exhausted its entire capitalization. And there were also some extra rehearsal payments, unscheduled layoffs, and a musician strike that delayed the opening, which then led to about $250,000 of canceled group sales. And on top of all that, there was all kinds of assorted drama throughout the tour. So near the beginning, Brenner, his co-star, and the director sued a New York restaurant for $7.5 million after they got food poisoning and had to miss some shows. (laughs) (laughs) I love this story. (laughs) And then the book writer asked to have his name removed from the credits, and the choreographer was fired. There was an incident where uh, his his co-star, Joan Diener's name, was left off of the marquee. So she demanded it be draped in black cloth, and then the theater goers thought Yul Brynner had died, which seems like a pretty dramatic conclusion to jump to. <laughs> but, oh. um, and then there was another almost lawsuit where Brynner threatened to terminate his contract. And there's even more that I didn't get to, but bottom line, there's a lot of offstage drama. The show didn't have any money, and neither the out-of-town, nor the, neither the out-of-town reviews nor Yul Brynner's star presence were enough to save it. The show had about a week of previews and then just one regular performance at the Palace on January 4th, 1976. The second show is Frankenstein. This was a play by Victor Giallanella that opened in 1981, exactly five years after Home Sweet Homer, uh, and at the same theater. Its story isn't quite as dramatic, but it is kind of interesting, so I'll get into it a little bit. At the time, Frankenstein was the most expensive play produced in Broadway history. It had unusually lavish sets and extravagant special effects, which of course malfunctioned, and that delayed opening night a couple of times. Once it finally opened, the show didn't have much money and didn't get good reviews. Sounds familiar. It was looking like the play would need to close pretty quickly, so the cast, crew, and producers started looking for ways to save it. First, there is an attempt to quickly raise just $400,000 to make a TV commercial. Then the cast volunteer to take salary cuts and waive their royalties. And basically, this Monday after opening night was a whirlwind of people trying to just dig up money for the show. And the producers constantly changing their minds over whether they were going to close this or not. Ultimately, the last minute funds couldn't be raised and the show was just too expensive. So Frankenstein did not get to play another performance. Like Home Sweet Homer, it shuttered at the palace in just one night, January 4th. Oh, man. Note note to uh, the Schubert. The Schubert's own the palace, right, James? Uh, no, isn't it Stuart? Uh... The palace is... There it is. Oh, it's an Ederlander. Okay. So... Uh, yeah, note note to the Nederlanders, never try to open a show at the Palace on January 4th. 
Yeah. yeah. So Stuart Lane and, and the Nederlanders own it together. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that is Those such are great. an awesome segment. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Between this and your ghost ones last time, Danielle, you're really outdoing yourself. I, I, I'm loving these. Thanks. <laughs> that is great. Well, we can't top that, Matt. Let's wrap it up and get out of here. No, we really should just let her do the show by herself because it's so much better than what we do. But anyway, thanks for listening to Today on Broadway. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. And you can find me on Twitter at BWWMatt and subscribe to something like a pop on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Daniela, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Daniela Parcel and on Instagram at Daniela Parcelowell. And my name is James Marino from BroadwayRadio.com and BroadwayStars.com. Thanks for spending some of your Thursday with us. If you are in the Northeast, perhaps you're digging out. If not, get some coffee and dig in and listen to all of our back podcasts. And uh, Matt and I will be back and chat with you tomorrow. 